It was spring in Jerusalem. The year was 30 AD. The holy city was crowded. There's people everywhere. Pilgrims were coming from all over the place. It was the annual Passover celebration. And Jesus had been in the area and he'd been doing healings and he'd been teaching people. And he wanted now to go to this festival, the festival of unleavened bread, and have a Passover meal in Jerusalem. See, Jesus knew that his mission was soon going to come to an end, that he was going to come and accomplish what he'd been sent to earth to do. So he calls to the disciples and says, you know, I need to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. You need to go to a nearby village and find a donkey. They get this donkey, Jesus gets on the donkey and they start to go into Jerusalem. And in Matthew 21, it says these words, it says the whole city was stirred up. In, in another translation, it says the whole city stopped. I remember a few years back that there was news that President Bush was going to come to Peoria. I knew this because a friend of mine works at the White House as one of the Secret Service agents and he flew in two or three weeks earlier to make the plans and preparation. All of a sudden throughout the city there was news that President Bush was coming. I remember going down War Memorial and seeing all these people lining up out towards Weaver's farm. And they had banners and they were cheering and shouting. And when he came, the, it was as though the whole city stood still. I could only imagine what happened back then in Jerusalem. The crowds were huge. This was the annual pilgrimage to Passover. That Palm Sunday, that first Palm Sunday, wouldn't have been quiet. This was a big deal. But why was Passover such a big deal? Why was the Feast of Unleavened Bread such a huge thing? Well, to find that out, we have to go back 1,350 years. We have to go back into the Old Testament because a lot of the things that happened in the New Testament were a result of something that happened in the Old Testament. So we have to go back to the book of Exodus. And Exodus is a crazy book. It's part of the first five books in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. It's known as the Pentateuch or the Torah. They would read the Pentateuch in the synagogue once every three days. They would take parts from it and they would bring these scrolls out and they would read in the synagogue about what happened around the time of Moses. 
Now, there's debate on who wrote the Pentateuch. There's a camp that says that Moses wrote all of these five books. There's another camp that said there was different authors. All I know is that it was God-breathed and it was given to us for some reason. And so, this book, Exodus, the second book in the Bible, is what I would call the book of extremes. It starts off with the children of Israel and they're growing crazily. The nation is growing. There are kids everywhere. I don't need to go into how it's growing, but it's growing. And not only are they now living in Israel, but some are now also living in Egypt. Pharaoh at the time starts to get worried. And so he decides to do some things to try and stop what's going on with the children of Israel in Egypt. The first thing he does is he enslaves them and makes their lives bitter. He makes their lives a living hell. They were building a lot of the things that you see now in Egypt, the pyramids and all the amazing structures The Israelites were forced to do that. Not getting paid, they were just forced to do it. In addition to that, Pharaoh felt he needed control this kid problem that they had. All these children that were being born. So he decides to kill every boy that is born. The midwives were told, as soon as there is a boy born, you kill it. Did you ever wonder why the children of Israel were in Egypt? Why didn't they stay in Israel? Do you ever wonder why they're there? It's because God led them there. In fact, God told them to go to Israel. It says in Genesis 46.3, he said, Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go to, is- to Egypt. There I will make you a great nation. Now, I don't know about you, but I often wonder why bad things happen to good people. Like, why aren't things working out the way it's planned? Like, where's God in all this? Well, guess what? The children of Israel were experiencing the same thing. You're not alone. God had led them there, but he had a plan. When you feel like, where's God? When you feel like, what is going on? God's still in control. He is. For 430 years, the Israelites had been in Egypt. 
But God was about to show the world how powerful he really was. There was an Israelite that had been living in Pharaoh's courts. He didn't know that. But back when they were killing the babies, a child made it out. Moses. You know the story. They put him in the basket and sent him up the Nile and the princess found Moses and he was raised within the courts of Pharaoh. The issue is Moses had been seeing what was going on. He'd been there firsthand seeing Pharaoh make this slavery a main thing of what was going to now create these cities in Egypt. He saw how the slavery was wrong. And God chose Moses to do something about it. Moses gets the challenge and is told, you're going to help me free these people. So Moses starts to challenge Pharaoh. He starts to say, you need to change your ways. You need to let the Israelites go. Pharaoh completely ignores him and actually challenges him a few times. Challenging him about who Moses' God is. So God gets really fed up with Pharaoh and so... Moses has to turn to him and says, I think there's going to be some things that are going to happen that may change your mind. So all of a sudden there's this huge shift in who God is and what he's about to do to Pharaoh and the people who live in Egypt. God starts to send these plagues. First, he turns the Nile and all the water into blood. Everything that's in the river is dying. The fish and everything's dying because it's now blood. It's not water. God sends a plague of frogs. Then he sends a plague of gnats and fleas. He kills all the Egyptian livestock. Pharaoh is still not backing down and so then all of a sudden he sends a plague of boils. Hailstones start falling from the sky and there's a plague of locusts that come and then there's darkness that fell across Egypt. That was the ninth plague. But the tenth one I want to pause at for a minute because it has everything to do with why Jesus was in Jerusalem at Passover. The final plague you find in Exodus 11 and 12. God tells Moses that he's going to bring death upon Egypt. So Moses gathers the elders of Israel, the leaders, and says to him that 
God has told him that there is going to be a death angel that is going to sweep this land. That you're to go to your homes. You need to tell all of the family leaders that they need to do something. Because as this death angel goes across this land, God wants to save the Israelites. So he tells the elders, this is what you need to do. You need to go and take a young lamb. A a lamb that has no blemish on it. You need to kill the lamb. Then the blood that comes from the lamb, you're going to put it across the doorpost and the lentil of the door. And as the angel of death sweeps through this land, if he sees the blood, then no one in the house will be killed. You will be saved. So they send this word out to all the fathers and the leaders of each home. And and the fathers go and get this blood. And they decide to just wipe the blood all on the lintels and on the doorposts. This was going to save their family. This was going to show that the blood had to be spilt for some reason. It was to save their family. That night, the angel of death sweeped through the land. And wherever he saw the blood on the doorpost, he just went over it. The people inside could hear the screaming. They could hear the crying. Because what was happening was the firstborns of the Egyptian families were being killed. Yet everyone inside this house was being saved. And it didn't miss Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh had a son, Ramesses II. And when the death angel went through Egypt, it killed Ramesses II. Pharaoh was furious. He called for Moses and Aaron and said, listen, you need to get out of this country and you need to get the Israelites out of this country now. And so word went out to the Israelites, we are now free. We now need to get out of here. It says in Exodus 12, 37, that there were some 600,000 men that were freed that night. Just the men alone. When you add the kids and the women, there was way over a million people, maybe close to two million people that went out of Egypt that night in a hurry. The 430 years of slavery and being in Egypt was over. It says that in Exodus 12, 40. 
Could you imagine that? Being bound up and in slavery to something for over 400 years. That was the first Passover. So from that moment on, the Israelites remembered this event through the feast of Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. You see, the Passover was reminded from that moment on to every family every year Not only to remind them of where they'd come from, but also they were teaching the next generation about the history. So that they could remember and they could also honor what happened back then in Egypt. From that first Passover for the next 40 years or so, Passover was celebrated in homes. Families celebrated the meal. But once Solomon had constructed the temple in Jerusalem, that became the central location for Passover. Instead of household observation, it now went to this huge pilgrimage festival where Israelites would travel from all over the world to celebrate Passover. Crowds would squeeze into Jerusalem. Normally there'd be around 40 to 50,000 people that would live in Jerusalem at that time. But when Passover happened, historians say there could be anywhere between 200 and 250,000 people. However, an ancient historian estimated that this Passover was close to 2.5 million Israelites in the city. It was packed. It was the focal point for Passover. After Jesus had been killed and rose from the dead, Passover stayed there for another 40 years, 30, 40 years. In AD 70, the Roman army came in and tore down the temple. And so it went back to go into the homes. They returned to the model of the first Passover. But when Jesus was there, the Passover meal looked different then than what it actually does today. When Jesus was there, the meal went something like this. The lamb was the centerpiece. That was the main thing. The children of Israel would remember the Passover and would go back to when the doorpost 
were covered with blood from the Lamb. The Israelite families would, pilgrim, would have a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. By the tenth day of the first month, they would have had to have secured the lamb. It had to be unblemished. It had to be less than one year old. They got the lamb four days before the actual meal. In addition to securing the lamb, families had to remove all the leaven or yeast, as we would know. They would remove the yeast from the house. They would remove it and in the morning of the Passover meal, they would burn this yeast. Now you may be saying, why the yeast? The children of Israel left Egypt so fast that in some of the homes they were cooking bread. And it did not have time to rise. As you put yeast into bread, it rises, it proves itself. They didn't have time for that and so they had to push down the dough and get out of there. And so they remembered that during the Passover. They would get rid of all the yeast out of the house. At around three in the afternoon of the Passover meal, the father of the house or family leaders would take this lamb to the temple. Supervised by the priests, the family leader would kill the lamb. They would catch the blood and then they would throw the blood in the basin of the altar at the temple. They did this until the temple was destroyed, like I just talked about. Scholars have said that at that last killing of the lamb at the temple, in AD 70, there was over 270,000 lambs killed. That makes for a messy church. So the family member now has caught the blood, put it at the basin of the altar, and now they skin the lamb. They remove the fat and they take the kidneys out and they place it on the altar to be burned. Then at this point, they take the skin that has been removed, they wrap the meat back in it and the father would put the lamb on the shoulder and would carry it back to the house. That's where the lamb would be roasted outside. And it would be ready to eat in just a few short hours. 
In addition to the lamb, there were other things that went with the meal. Now remember, this is an educational tool for the next generation. All these items had to be ready by 6 p.m. so that they could sit back, recline, and talk about what happened back at the first Passover. Each item had a significant role. Obviously, there was the lamb that we have talked about. Then there would be bitter herbs. The bitter herbs would remind the children of Israel of the bitterness of being in slavery. There would be vegetables that were dipped in a salty substance. The salt would remind them of the tears that they shed while they were in slavery. The unleavened bread brought back to mind the hasty departure that they had out of Egypt. There was a nut and paste, a nut and fruit paste that was made. And that would remind them of the clay that they had to create, get to create bricks during their slavery. Then there was wine. There was four cups of wine that they would have drank. You find this in Exodus 6, 6 and 7. And it was reminding them of four expressions of deliverance. I will bring you out, I will deliver, I will redeem, and I will take. That Passover meal was prominent during the last week of Jesus. That's why they were there. You see, the Israelites were in the same place as they were back in Egypt. They were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for someone to save them again. And yet all they had to do was look back in the scriptures that they had and realized that the story of Jesus had been right in front of them the whole time. In the Old Testament, there's over 350 prophecies, foretellings about what is about to happen in the New Testament with Jesus. Now, I'm not going to go through all 350 of them, but I'm going to touch on some. And please remember this. Back then, there was no internet, no texting, no web to research, 
Yet from Genesis 3 and on, we are looking at 4,000 years of promises and of prophecies that would happen in the New Testament. Genesis 3, it talks about a Messiah that would be born of a woman. It talks about it in Genesis 3.15, but it happens in Matthew 1 verse 20. In the Old Testament, in Micah 5.2, it talks about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. Now we're really getting detailed as to where this Messiah is going to be born. It happens in Matthew 2.1. It says that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. That doesn't happen every day. It's prophesied in Isaiah 7.14. It happens in Matthew 1.22 and 23. It talks about Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem in Zechariah 9.9. It happens in Mark 11.7 and 9. It says that Jesus is going to be portrayed by a friend. In Psalm 41.9, it happens in Luke 22.47 and 48. It says that this Messiah would be falsely accused in Psalm 35:11 and it happens in Mark 15:4 and 5 It says that this Messiah would stand before his accusers silent It happens it's prophesied in Isaiah 53:7 but it happens in Mark 15:4 and 5 says the Messiah would be spat on and struck down in Isaiah 50 verse 6 and it happens in Matthew 26 verse 67. It says that this Messiah is going to be hated without a cause in Psalm 35 19 but it happens in John 15 24 to 25. says that when this Messiah is being killed, he will drink vinegar. He'll be given vinegar to drink in Psalm 69 verse 21. It happens in Matthew 27, 34. It says that soldiers will gamble for his clothing as he's being killed in Psalm 22:18, And it happens in Luke 23, 34. It says that Jesus will be mocked and ridiculed in Psalm 22, verse 7 and 8. It happens in Luke 23 and 35. It says that the Messiah's hands would be pierced. His feet would be pierced as he's crucified in Psalm 22, verse 16. It is prophesied and it happens in John 20, verse 25 to 27. And it said that Jesus would be crucified 
with criminals. It said that in Isaiah 57 verse 9. And it happens in Matthew 27 verse 38. People, the stage was set. There was 4,000 years of us being told that there was a Messiah coming. And guess what? It was all about you. The Israelites weren't expecting who they got. They were waiting for some great politician. They were waiting for a military leader that would come and break the tyranny of the Roman Empire. But Jesus came on a donkey. The people were ready for their Messiah. But just not in the way they thought he would come. For years, they had been ruled over. They had been oppressed. They'd lived in slavery. They were under government control. And for 4,000 years, they had been waiting for their Messiah to come. From the beginning of the Bible to today, to today, God has been trying to get your attention. It was as though God was trying to paint a picture all the way through history. As Andrea has been painting here today, I know some of you have been a little distracted. You've been looking at the picture and thinking, what's she doing? You're trying to figure out where she's going with this picture. At times you might look at it and you think, does she know what she's doing? It doesn't look much. At times it looks a bit of a mess. But only the artist, only the creator knows how it's going to look in the end. Throughout history, God has been creating this masterpiece. It's called history, his story. At times it has looked messy, at times it's looked ruined, at times it's looked flawed, at times it's even looked unfinished. But God has a bigger picture. He has a bigger plan and you are in the middle of it. These aren't just stories that were great to read about day in, day out. When you look at the scripture and you start to see that Jesus was in the middle of everything in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, all of a sudden the book comes alive. From Genesis 3 to today, over 6,000 years, Back in Genesis, the redemption process began. 
Your name was in the middle of it. If you go to the Passover celebrations now, they don't kill lambs at the temples anymore. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb for us. There's no more killing of animals. He was pure. He was spotless. And he did it so that you could have eternal life with him one day. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. From Moses to Jesus to today, there has been a piece of art that God has been painting. And you're in the middle of it. There's no more animals to be sacrificed. We don't have to do any rituals. We don't have to spend days preparing for a meal. He did it 2,000 years ago. Jesus made a way where there seemed to be no way. Today, I just wanted you to hear that story. I wanted you to realize that what you are going through right now, it's all a part of the bigger picture. Where there seems to be no way, he'll make a way. As Jesus was riding into Jerusalem that first Palm Sunday, the people didn't know what was about to happen. They were still looking for their Messiah. Yet by the end of the week, he would become the ultimate Passover sacrifice for all mankind. He made a way where there seemed to be no way. Today, you may have just wandered into this building thinking, I don't even know why I'm here. You may be here thinking, I don't normally go to church. It's the week before Easter. Saw Riverside was open. You came in. You thought you were just stumbling in. For the past 6,000 years, God has been painting this picture, and you're in the middle of it. And it includes this morning. For some of you that have been following Jesus, you've been saying, when is this Messiah going to help me out? Jesus, I'm following you, but life is really hard. I don't see a way out. 
you're still in the picture too. Here's what I want us to do. We're going to sing that song that I asked the band to sing earlier. We're going to do it again. And people are going to respond differently to this message. For some, you'll just stand and worship for what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. For others, you may kneel where you're at. Now that you can look at this whole thing of Passover and see how God had a plan from the very foundations of the earth. For some of you, you'll come up to this front. We call it an altar. A place where you can come and just surrender your life to Jesus. As the band sings this, the way you feel God is challenging you to whether it's standing, kneeling coming to the altar going into the aisles you may be new to this you may be like I have no idea what's happening right now
some of you, you're thinking, what are my next steps? This may be the first time you've heard this message about Jesus. You've to give your life to him. What are my next steps?
how you've been faithful for thousands of years and you're not going to let us down now. God, I pray for everyone here that is just saying, God, I need you. celebrate the Passover. 